Hebrews 10 from verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for you promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning woefully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Verse 19 starts with therefore. Once again we must ask what is the therefore, therefore. He has just reminded us of the perfect offering of Christ in verse 14. That there is no other offering necessary in verse 18. And he says therefore. Since we have this perfect offering in the sacrifice of Christ therefore let us do something it's a long sentence from verse 19 to verse 22 but the command is found in verse 22 let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith so he's saying that is what we must do. We must draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. But why? We'll get to the command, but why? He says in verse 19, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now what is he talking about? This whole passage, well, this whole sentence in verse 19 to verse 22 has got the temple worship or the tabernacle worship as background. Remember, in the days of the temple or the days of the tabernacle in the wilderness, people had to enter with blood. They had to sacrifice an animal, sprinkle the blood on the altar, and then they could enter the temple and into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go once a year. And to go in there, he had to go through the veil which separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And the high priest had to go in there. There were also cleansing rituals that they had to bathe and um, all kinds of rituals which they had to obey. Now that is the background and is, I don't want to say playing, but, but he's using that as background when he gives this command. So the commands he gives or the statements he makes are all colored with that background. You have to remember uh, this picture. The blood of the animal being sprinkled on the altar. The priest going through the holy of, uh, through the veil to enter the most holy place after having bathed himself. That is all um, the picture you have to have in your mind when you read this. And then he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So not by the blood of goats and bulls, but by the blood of Jesus. He says we can enter the holy place. Not an earthly holy place, but the very presence of God. And he says we can enter confidently. What is he speaking about? You cannot enter God's presence on your own merit. If you had the right view of God and you had the right view of your own sin, you would say, there's no way I could approach this living God. I better run as far away from him as I can because in his presence I'm going to die because I'm full of sin. People don't think like that because they think lightly of God and lightly of sin. But if you thought correctly about God, if you recognized God's holiness and you recognized the sinfulness of your own sin, then you say, oh, uh, confidence isn't a word I would use uh, in approaching God. I'm too scared. But he says we can enter God's presence with confidence. Where does this confidence come from? Not self-confidence, but confidence in the blood of Christ. Confidence in the finished work of Christ. Confidence in the perfect sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. If your trust is in Christ, if your trust and your confidence is in Christ and in his finished work, then you can approach God with confidence because you know it is finished. The work is done. The work is completed. But if you want to approach God on your own merits, 
Well, then you shouldn't have confidence. If you have confidence then, then you are badly deceived. So he says, we can enter God's holy place with confidence because Jesus has brought the perfect offering. Confidence does not mean flippantly, does not mean arrogantly. It's not this walking up to your big pal and patting him on the back. You are to approach him with reverence and fear. But you can approach him confidently. Firstly, by the blood of Jesus. He says, secondly, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So, in the Old Testament, in the old time, you had to approach God through the temple ritual. He says, but now there's a new and living way. And this new and living way has been inaugurated for us through the veil, which is the flesh of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, when Christ died, when the veil in the temple was torn in two, that was telling us there's a new way. There is free access to God through the body of Christ which has been torn for us. The separation between God and man, the veil in the holy place, the veil in the temple which separated the holy of holies from the holy place, that veil which brought separation was a symbol of mankind's separation from God, our alienation from God because of our sin. But when Christ died, when he bore the penalty for our sin, when his body was torn, the veil was torn to signify for us we can now approach God, not through animal sacrifices, not through our own merits, but through Christ, through his body, which was torn his life which was laid down on our behalf. And then he says, and since we have a great high priest, or a great priest over the house of God, and he's spoken about that extensively in this book, Jesus the great high priest, the better high priest, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not like the old high priests, the perfect high priest, the sinless one, the one who lives forever to intercede for his people, the one who brought the perfect offering, since we have this great high priest over the house of God, not in the house of God like Moses, but over the house of God because Jesus is Lord. He says, therefore, so it's the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus and Jesus himself or the priesthood of Jesus. Therefore, we can draw near with a sincere heart. So all he's saying is, the Old Testament way is not the way to approach God. The way to approach God is through Christ, through the finished work of Christ, through the perfect blood of Christ, through the body of Christ that was broken for us, through Christ who has risen from the dead, who lives and intercedes for the believers. He says, through Christ we can approach God and because Christ has done a perfect work, we can approach God confidently. And he says, therefore let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. 
Now, Christ has done all of that, but that does not automatically bring you near. He he says, let us draw near. There's a command to draw near. In the first place, if you haven't truly repented, if you haven't been born again, then you must draw near to God by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, he's speaking here to believers who started drifting, who started growing lax. He's telling them, don't drift away from Christ, draw closer to God. Don't go try some other way to approach God. No, keep on drawing closer to God through Christ. We must draw near, and obviously we must draw near to God. Many people don't really want to do that. Many people are quite happy with knowing God at a distance. Many people are quite happy with just second-hand Christianity. Just having someone preach on Sundays and then, oh, I'll hear what God said to that man and then I'll hear from him. A second-hand relationship. That's not the way it should be. You must draw near to God. And if you have repented and you believe in Christ and, and you are a true believer, then you must draw near to God by seeking His face. You have to spend time in God's presence. You have to spend time before the Lord. You have to make time to seek the Lord's face, to study God's word for yourself, to pray and to really seek the Lord. Even these days you're going to trust your soul to someone else. You're pretty stupid. You must seek the Lord for yourself. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart, literally with a true heart. That links with what Jesus says in John 4 verse 24, that those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. He says, draw near to God and really draw near to God. Don't be like the Israelites or like the Pharisees of which Jesus said that these people draw near to me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Now if you want to draw near to God, really draw near to Him, really seek Him. God does not want your religious rituals. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want a bit of quiet time or I pray in the morning and I pray at night just to pray in the morning or to pray at night. Seek Him with a true heart. Seek Him like you want to know Him. Seek Him because you want to find Him. Draw near with a true heart, with a sincere heart, honestly, truly, really seeking the Lord. That would include, if there is sin in your life that you are aware of, then you have to confess it. Then you have to lay down. You can't just I'll just pretend like it's not there. God's not fooled. If your own conscience is condemning you, you can't draw near to God. That doesn't mean you must be perfect. That that means you must confess, lay it down, admit it before the Lord. But be genuine with the Lord. Forget this. Oh, thou most high and holy, like they pray in the Anglican church, saying words they don't even understand. Um, 
be real, be genuine. God knows your heart. That doesn't mean you approach Him flippantly. Doesn't mean you approach Him carelessly or uh, like He's your big pal. But you must be genuine. You can't play games with Him. You can't put on masks. You can't pretend. He knows you through and through. Just admit and be real. Seek the Lord really and truly. People, there are so many prayers which are offered which are not true. There are so many words voiced to God which they're just voiced to God because they are, it's a thing that's supposed to be said. But there's no trueness of heart in them. We must draw near to God with true hearts, sincere hearts, insincerity, and really seeking the Lord. And then he says, in full assurance of faith. A bit later in this book he will say, without faith it is impossible to please God. If you want to draw near to God in the way that God has prescribed, in the way that this letter says, then you must draw near in full assurance of faith. Now, what does that mean? It means a full and complete trust in the sufficiency of Christ. You must be fully persuaded that Christ's offer is sufficient, that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. You must be fully persuaded that Christ is the one. That's the way you must draw near to God. Not, oh, I don't know whether I can approach God because I don't know if I've done enough today. You must approach God not on your own merits, but with complete and utter reliance upon Jesus Christ. And you must be convinced. I'm not saying you must say you are convinced. You must be convinced that Christ's offer is sufficient. You must be, you must have assurance of salvation that indeed Christ has saved me. Christ's blood covers my sin. But what he's saying here is, see that Christ is the one. Trust completely in him and draw near to God through him and him alone with complete and total trust, confidence, reliance upon Christ and his finished work on the cross. That is the way. He's saying you must be fully persuaded that God will accept your approach to him because of Christ. Many people have never even thought about these things. Because we just learn, oh, you close your eyes and you pray. But why should God accept you when you pray? You're on earth. He's in heaven. You're full of sin. He's holy. Why should He accept you? The Buddhists also believe that their God listens to them when they pray. The Muhammadians believe that their God listens to them when they pray. Just because you think that you are approaching God, that doesn't mean that you've approached God, that doesn't mean that God is pleased with the way that you are approaching Him. Your trust, your reliance must be upon Christ. That Christ has fully dealt with the sin that separates you from God. If you are not persuaded of that, then you can't really draw near to God. Then you'll be calling out, you might be hoping that He'll hear you, 
but you won't really be drawing near to God. You can only really draw near to God through Christ. Finish and clark. He says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's referring back to Hebrews 9 chapter Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God So your conscience which says oh you can't approach God because you've sinned that must be sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ Once again you must be utterly convinced that the blood of Christ fully covers your sin And then he says, and our bodies washed with pure water. Which most people relate to baptism, but I don't find that very convincing in this passage. It's definitely referring back to the Old Testament uh, type, like I said, of the priests being having to bathe themselves. But exactly what he says when he says, and our bodies washed with pure water, that's a bit difficult. One commentator offers... Uh, the opinion that that's speaking about total surrender to Christ, that, that your whole life is made new. I can't really say. There are a few references to washing in the New Testament. There is one to baptism. Call on the name of the Lord and be baptized, having your sins washed away in Acts 22 verse 16. But there's also uh, the washing of the water with the word in Ephesians 5.26 and then there's also in Titus 3 verse 5 the washing of regeneration so washing is used in quite a few different contexts in the New Testament so I can't I'm not going to offer you more of an explanation on that the idea is draw near to God with full trust in Christ and with full sincerity The next command, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for you promised is faithful. The first let us is let us draw near. The second let us is let us hold fast. The third let us is let us consider. So the second command is let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So, Keep on trusting in Christ. He's writing to people who clearly were starting to waver about Christ. And he's saying, keep on trusting in Christ alone. On the one hand, Christ is the only Savior. If you abandon Him, you go lost. You must recognize that He is the only Savior. On the other hand, you must actively be trusting in Him. On the other hand, He who promised is faithful. He won't let you down if you trust in Him. So you can keep on trusting in Him because He promised is faithful. He will do what He said. So don't waver in unbelief. Don't start doubting Christ. The promise of God is true. What God has promised He will do. So after holding fast or while holding fast our confession he says let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds so believers have to consider you have to think about this how to do it and of course then you have to do it 
believers have to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We must encourage one another to love and good deeds. We must encourage one another to love, to love the brethren, to love all people, and we must encourage people to do good works. And then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he's saying, don't just stay away from the meetings of the believers. Um, I see it's a, it's in our day, it's becoming a real tendency for people just to ignore this command. And people just say, oh well, they give all kinds of reasons sometimes valid reasons sometimes reasons I feel the same kind of way but still the command is there don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so there must be corporate worship individual seeking of God is extremely important I've already stressed that but there must be gathering with the believers to encourage one another You see, church is not just about going to get a message. Church is about going to encourage one another. To what? To perseverance, to love, to good deeds. And he says, and do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the great day of Christ, the second coming comes closer, we must encourage one another. Why? Because Jesus said before he comes, there will be great lukewarmness, there will be great apostasy, there will be great deception. There will be great lack of enthusiasm. So, Jesus said, we must keep awake, we must pray, we must encourage one another. When we see one another going to sleep, we must say, now wake up. And in the Western church, there's so much sleeping that anyone who's even just speaking about waking up is labeled a radical. Um, but scripture says as you see the day drawing near encourage one another to love and good deeds everybody sends these emails around about earthquakes and and tsunamis and and how oh the signs of the times are there Uh, oh you must really recognize the signs of the times are there but people aren't encouraging one another to love and good deeds Um, so yeah a bunch of commands They're not difficult to understand. They must be obeyed. Now he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So it is a general warning about not defiantly sinning against God, but he's got some specific things in mind. The whole idea, draw near, hold fast to the confession. So, the big thing which he has in mind here with sinning willfully is abandoning Christ. I say again, there's a general principle, if you read scripture, which warns you against defiant, disobedient, rebellious sin. But he's got some specific things in mind when he says here, sinning willfully. And that is, if you abandon Christ, if you, if you let go of the confession of Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All that is left is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
people, I didn't invent the doctrine of fire or of hell. Here it says, all that remains for those who abandon the confession in Christ, all that remains for them is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Nothing else. If you've known Christ and you apostatize from Him, you fall away from Him, all that you can expect is a terrible judgment of fire, a fire that will consume the adversaries. There are other scripture references which line up with this. But on the day of God's wrath, He will consume the whole world with the fire of His wrath. He's angry at sin. He's angry at those who don't believe in Christ. He's angry at his opponents. Everyone who willfully rebels against him, who refuses to bow the knee before Christ, and especially those who say they've known Christ and have fallen away from them. He's saying a terrible judgment of fire is coming upon this earth. And if you've left the only hope of salvation, then all that remains for you is this terrible fire. He reiterates this. He said this before in Hebrews chapter 2. Now he's saying it again. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, in the days of Moses, if you sinned, if you set aside the law of Moses, you died without mercy. A man was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. He was brought to Moses. They asked the Lord what to do. The Lord said, stone him. He was stoned. If you set aside the law of Moses, you died. But there had to be two or three witnesses. No one was to be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, he actually refers to some witnesses in verse 29. He says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of Christ? So he's saying, when you fall away from Christ, you do the following. You trample underfoot the Son of God, so he witnesses against you, that you've trampled him underfoot. You regard as unclean the blood of the covenant which has sanctified you. So the blood of the covenant testifies against you. And you insult the Spirit of Christ who showed you that Christ is the only way. So the Spirit testifies against you. There are three witnesses you mentioned which all testify against you if you fall away from Christ. If you fall away from Christ then you've sinned against Christ. You've sinned against the blood of Christ. You've sinned against the Spirit of Christ. And all of those witnesses testify against you and you will not escape. Like the lawbreakers in the Old Testament were killed without mercy on the witness, on the evidence of two or three, the testimony of two or three witnesses, so you will receive a much severer test, much severer punishment. Because it's not Moses you disregarded, it's Christ. And he says, if you fall away from Christ, you actually trample Christ underfoot. He says, you think nothing of the blood of Christ. And you insult the Spirit of Christ. It's a terrible thing. And then he says again, for we know him who said, we know 
Him who said, it's God who said this. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God says, you may not take vengeance, but vengeance belongs to God and He will avenge, He will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. God is a judge. God takes vengeance. I mean, if you want to deny that, you'll have to close this Bible. You'll have to close the New Testament. It's all over. So, recognize this. God will not just let you off if you ignore Christ, if you fall away from Christ. And then he says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People, the living God is not our playmate. If you don't know him, if you stand before him on the day of Christ, and you are not in Christ on that day, it will be terrifying. This verse deserves a sermon on its own. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not sweet Jesus, meek and mild. It's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying, says Revelation 6, that people will cry out to the rocks and the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb because the great day of his wrath has come and who can stand? It's a terrifying thing. That's why I keep on saying you must be sure that you are in Christ. It really doesn't matter what you do on this earth, what you achieve or don't achieve. The great thing is, are you going to fall into the hands of the living God when he's angry with you over your sin because you've never trusted in Christ, because you're not in Christ, or are you going to arrive on that day and have glory and jubilation and happiness and joy forever because you are in Christ? That's all that matters. Now the most striking part of this all is if you see who he is writing to He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. He's saying, remember guys, you've already suffered for Christ. But these people have already suffered for Christ. He's telling them, he's giving them these great warnings. So how can we be lackadaisical about these great warnings? He said, these people suffered. They were made a public spectacle. They were laughed at. They were reproached. They went through all kinds of tribulations for the sake of Christ. And they shared with those who were so treated. He says, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Now, we must understand something here. In many prisons of those days, like it is still in some third world countries today, if someone doesn't come to the prison to bring you food, you'll die of hunger in the prison. If someone doesn't come to the prison to minister to your needs, you will die there. But now, here's the trick. If you go to the prison to help the Christian brother, then they're going to know you are a Christian as well, then you're going to get in trouble for helping them. So it's not just, oh, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. It wasn't, oh, before grace, oh, God, help the prisoners. It was you went and served them And that brought you into danger. And he says, And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He said, When the people took your stuff because of Jesus, he said, Oh, we don't mind, we've got better stuff in heaven. These people really started off with a bang. 
these people showed all the great evidence of being Christians. They suffered for the sake of Christ. And yet he's telling them that they need to persevere. So how much more should we heed this warning? We who live in this soft, comfortable Western Christianity where it just doesn't cost you anything to be a Christian. How much more we need to, we need to heed this warning. He says now, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He said, remember how you started. And that faith which made you follow Christ like that at the beginning. Don't throw that away. That's got a great reward. Don't be stupid. Don't chuck it all away for a bit of comfort, for a bit of prosperity in this world. Cling to that faith, to that trust in Christ, which you had when you were so persecuted. Don't throw that confidence away. Because that confidence has a great reward. That confidence will bring you heaven. That confidence will bring you eternal glory. But if you throw that away, you've lost everything. Even after you've suffered for Christ. If you throw your confidence away, you've lost everything. So we must endure. That's what he says. For you have need, verse 36, of endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The promise is true but it's inherited by faith and patience. You will only get what was promised after enduring to the end. Jesus says in Matthew 24, the love of many shall grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So you need to endure. This speaks of suffering, of, of, of having a battle of having to work it out, of having to hang tough. You need to endure. You need to endure in your confidence in Christ. So you need to believe in Christ and you need to keep on believing in Christ till the end. And then you have done the will of God. And then you will receive what was promised. It's God's will for you to believe in Christ and to keep on believing to the end. To obey Christ, to follow Christ to the end. He says, for yet in a very little while, quoting scripture, he who is coming will come and will not alone. So he's saying, Jesus is coming soon, in a little while. He's not delaying unnecessarily, he will come. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Not by works, but by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The righteous one shall live by faith. And that's faith that endures and that's what Hebrews 11 is all about and we'll get to that. My righteous one shall live by faith. The great scripture which marked the Reformation. It's not by works, not by rituals, not by priests and by all kinds of religious trinkets that you approach God, but by faith. It's not by your own merits, but by faith that you approach God, that you live, that you are declared righteous. The righteous one shall live by faith. This is not only an intellectual assent to the truths of Christianity. This is a trusting, a relying upon Christ. This is a clinging to Christ even when the going gets tough. Because if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God has no pleasure in apostates. God has no pleasure in those who fall away from Christ. His soul hates them. Don't fall away from Christ. Now he says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith 
to pr- the preserving of the soul. They are those who shrink back to destruction. There are many who profess faith in Christ, who for a while walk the road and then they fall away. There are many who shrink back and their end is destruction. And if you shrink back, your end will be destruction. But if you have faith to the preserving of the soul, then you will be saved. If you've got this God-given faith, this enduring faith, this faith that does not come from within, but is worked in you by God, if you've got this faith, the true saving faith, you will be saved. If you've got the persevering, enduring faith, you shall be saved. So that's the question. In which group of this this 39 do you fall? There are two groups. Only time will tell. But if you endure to the end, if you keep on believing in Christ, you shall be saved. If you shrink back, if you fall away from Christ, you shall be damned. It's as simple as that. So that's the great, severe warning of Hebrews chapter 10 with the encouragement. Trust in Christ. He is the way you will be saved from Him. Warning, fall away from Him. Or don't trust in Him. Don't repent and believe Him. Don't obey Him. You'll go to hell. That's as simple as that. Okay. Are there any questions?